0: I don't get that. I really don't. I think people are, are intending to try to, uh, to make sure that we don't fight and argue about certain things. But, and, and I understand that peacemaking desire. But all religions are not the same. They're not even close to the same. Hindus believe in millions of God. And Judaism, Christianity, and Islam believe in one God. And they believe in a fairly personal God. And deists believe in a God. But he's impersonal out there somewhere our LDS and our Mormon friends believe that there is a God who was once a man and he's exalted and now a God and he lives with a goddess wife and has a bunch of spirit children we don't even come close to God and we're saying oh well we all really believe the same thing no we don't not even close I'm not here to diminish those ideas I'm just saying that they're not even close let alone how a person is saved, or even if a person needs to be saved. Some Buddhism believes, I mean, basically an atheistic belief. There is no God. So we come into this idea that there are a variety, there are great differences between faiths. And oftentimes people will ask, well, what is it then that makes Christianity Distinct or different, and you've probably heard this. You probably heard it from me. You probably heard it from the church. And there are usually we usually identify two two aspects of the Christian faith that distinguish it from everything else. Just two. And in fact, I've heard people go so far as to say there are really only two religions. There is the Christian religion and everything else. And, and here's the here's why they would say that is because the Christian faith would hold to the divinity of Christ and salvation by grace. And that's it. Every other faith system would diminish the divinity of Christ and or tell you that somehow you have to earn favor before God, whether it's your good deeds out of way, your bad deeds, which, by the way, is a miserable system. And if you hold to that, please, let's talk. That's a terrible system. And I may get into that later. But, but everybody would pretty much hold to the idea then that um, there is some human effort that a person needs to do in order to achieve or obtain favor with God and it is to this second aspect this idea of salvation by grace through faith that Paul addresses his letter to the Galatian church and so it's been a couple of weeks let me review where we've been so that we can all be on the same page as we go forward and Paul is dealing with this With these churches in the Galatian region, and he's writing to them about this idea of grace. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. What does it mean for a person to go from being dead to alive? What does it mean for somebody for somebody to go from the state of being dead by reason of their trespasses and sins, which Paul talks about in, in Ephesians 2? What does it take for a person to go from being dead by reason of your trespasses and sins to being made alive in God? What is the means by which that occurs? What is the means by which somebody goes from being by nature a child of wrath being uh, a child of God's beloved son All right. again Paul writes in Ephesians 2 you are by nature not, not just simply by choice you are by nature children of wrath but he then adopts us into his family what is the means by which that transformation takes place what does it what is the means by which a person goes from being a, a rebel outcast to be being a, a, a child a, a child of the king and an inheritor of all the promises of that king what is the means by which all that those things occur and Paul would answer to the Galatians the means by which that, that happens is grace Amen. now you might say well I think it's Jesus but that would fall under then under that would be of course that would fall under the whole idea of grace because Christ came because of his gracious mercies and so when I talk about grace really what I'm talking about here is God's undeserved or unmerited favor in other words God is gracious he pours out his favor upon people who really don't deserve it it's unmerited it's unmerited And the reason Paul is writing this letter is because some people have opposed his preaching. He's been preaching that a person comes into a relationship with God by grace through faith, and there have been some individuals who um, have opposed him. There has been some opposition. And in fact, the opposition has... Been stating that a person comes into a relationship with God by first becoming a Jew. And we, we call these people Judaizers. All right? They basically would hold that, you know, Paul, this idea of grace is really, really nice, but um, really what, what happens is you've got to first become a Jew. And then you can become a Christian. And, and they taught this, and we see this summarized in Acts fifteen one. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching their brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were teaching, you had to first follow the customs of Moses, uh, particularly with circumcision and also with uh, dietary laws and with uh, observing holy days and Sabbath days. And so they said first of all you can become a Jew and then once you're a Jew then God will accept you and you can become a Christian and Paul is saying that's not true at all. That a Gentile can become a Christian based solely upon God's unmerited favor and you don't need to go through the Mosaic law to become a Christian. And so Paul is preaching this idea of salvation by grace through faith and he's he's uh, come up against some Opposition who is saying that Paul is wrong. Now here's the way they attack Paul or the way they try to diminish his message. They do not take his message and try to uh, undo it from a theological standpoint. They employ a simple logical fallacy called an ad hominem attack. and Basically that is uh, attack the messenger. All right. so in other words instead of saying Paul your theological basis for, for, your, for your gospel is completely incorrect and here's why point one point two point three they just simply say Paul doesn't know what he's talking about Paul isn't really an apostle I mean he's just kind of some self-proclaimed guy who kind of came into this whole Christianity thing, Christianity thing kind of late in the game and he made up this whole gospel that he's preaching And you can't really trust him. I mean, he never saw Jesus. He never walked with Jesus. He didn't, you know, how does he know any of this stuff? He's a self-proclaimed minister with some made-up message. And how can you trust a guy like that? So you see, by attacking the messenger, then you attack the message. If you can diminish Paul, then you don't need to worry about all of those Persnickety facts about his theological position. So they attack the messenger, and so what Paul's going to do in the book of Galatians is he's actually spends the first two chapters defending himself. Now, in chapter 3, he's going to begin to launch his theological position on why salvation by grace is a theologically sound doctrine and that it is actually found in the Old Testament, that it is actually found in the law of Moses. He's going to do that in chapter 3, or beginning in chapter 3. But before he can get to stating his theological position, he first begins by affirming that he himself, as a messenger of the gospel, is... It's trustworthy. And so he spends time defending himself. And so the first two chapters of the book of Galatians is Paul defending himself against these theological... Uh, against these, uh, uh, these attacks against his person. Now, when we read Galatians 2, and as you read it this week, and you read it so astutely, I'm certain. As you read it this week... It's easy to end up wondering why in the world or what is the relevance to this biographical, historical account of Paul's life. I mean, really, what relevance is there to my life with Paul telling me about his travels to Jerusalem? What does that have to do with me? So, 2,000 years ago, Paul goes to Jerusalem, whoop-de-doo... What does that have to do with me? Well, stick around. We'll try to see if it has any relevance to our life. Or perhaps maybe it's just an interesting biographical sketch of an historical event. Um, but you know me. we won't. It won't be just that. And we need this because, as I said in the very first message on Galatians, we're all Pharisees. We... Human beings by nature want to earn divine favor. But when a person comes to Christ, they realize that divine favor is, is not earned. It is, it is a gift of God. However... We're also all in the area of being recovering Pharisees. We are always kind of going back. We're always tempted to go back to add some measure of human goodness to earn God's favor. And I know you guys, I know you guys don't do it, but I do. You know, I was like, well, if I if I'm really really good today, then God will give me my prayer request, right? You know, I like, well, if I do this and that, no, there's somebody who, who needs some help. I'll help them, and then maybe God will do something nice for me, right? Because I'm really I'm in need of something, right? Well, we do that. And so we can twist God's arms. like, Oh, really? Wow, you're nice to that guy. I guess I owe you now. Really? So we're all recovering Pharisees. And we all need to, uh, I guess we could begin our, our, our church services. With, Hello, I'm John. And I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> Hello, John. So, but we're all recovering Pharisees to some degree because at some point in our lives we're always seeking to add some measure of God's, of human goodness to obtain God's favor. But Galatians then is a, it reminds us of God's truth of grace. And so that is why we need the book of Galatians and hopefully that is why we need chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's go ahead, let's read our passage today. I'll read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 and then we'll look at these verses a little more closely. It goes like this, chapter 2, verse 1, Galatians. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually works for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. And so Paul... or actually, This is actually a continuation of, of an argument that Paul began in verse 11 of chapter 1. So Paul continues his defense of his apostleship by talking about this gospel of, of grace that comes through faith. And he says, I submitted my gospel to the church leaders. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And... Uh, so he goes up to Jerusalem, and he's using this as evidence for the truthfulness of his gospel. And so he says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. And I think that this—that Acts chapter 11 gives us the background to this trip. Uh, the book of Acts records five visits of Paul to Jerusalem. And I believe what we're referring to here is Paul's second vision which is recorded in Acts chapter 11 now I bring that up because some of you may read a commentary or uh, hear another sermon and you'll hear them say that this is actually Paul's third visit recorded in Acts chapter 15 um, there is some, some reasons why um, there is some importance why we, we want to figure out when Paul went to Jerusalem uh, in, in Galatians chapter 2 but I'll leave that for another discussion so, I hold that this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. It is what we would call the famine relief visit to Jerusalem. And that Acts chapter 11 gives us um, this detail. If you want to discuss if this was the second or third visit to Jerusalem by Paul, we can do that over coffee someday. Because it's a really boring sermon. It's a fun discussion. It's a terrible sermon. So anyways, that's my position. So here's what Acts chapter 11 basically uh, tells us. It tells us that the gospel came to the Gentiles as a result of Stephen's death. So you'll recall um, Stephen was uh, in Jerusalem and that he was martyred. And as a result of his martyrdom, uh, the people of Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, were scattered, you know, they basically fled for their lives. And so I guess there's a nice lesson there. God has a way of getting his message out when we're uh, too stubborn uh, or whatever to go and do what he says. He has a way of getting his job done. So um, so, anyways, the gospel starts heading out into Gentile territory and the gospel starts coming to non-Jewish people and this results in a lot of difficulties or a lot of questions. What happens when it comes to a culture? Like what about dietary laws? Can, when, when we have a church potluck, can we ask pork chops? You know, because somebody's going to bring pork chops or somebody's going to bring bacon. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, you can, you can see, you know, I mean, you know, it's, this is going to create some issues. And so the gospel's going forward and there's some questions that have to be answered. And so can, can we uh, advance... Uh, a slide there. And so what's happening is that down here in Jerusalem, Stephen is killed. People start, Christians start getting spread throughout uh, the Roman world. And basically up in here, Gentiles are starting to come to know Christ and they're receiving the gospel. And so the people in Jerusalem are saying, oh my goodness, a lot of great things are going on up here, but we have no idea. So they send Barnabas out of Jerusalem to go up to Antioch to find out what's going on. And Barnabas goes up to Antioch and he hears what's going on and he's saying, oh, this is great, this is wonderful. I can't believe God is doing great and wondrous things. And so he hears of Saul of Tarsus and he goes over to Tarsus and gets Paul and brings Paul back to Antioch and great things are happening uh, in this Generally, Gentile area. Of course, there are Jews living up in here. Uh, both a the Jewish, there's a Jewish community as well as a Gentile community. The great things are going on. And then, while all of these great things are going on, a prophet by the name of Agabus stands up and says, "There's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and you need to set aside uh, some money so that you can take care of the saints uh, when this famine comes." And so that's what they do. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas uh, gather funds for the famine that comes, and they end up going down to Jerusalem uh, to take this famine relief. I believe that when Paul and Barnabas took the famine relief down to Jerusalem, that's what we're talking about here in Acts chapter 2. And so, I said all of that to say this, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. So Paul is saying, after 14 years of preaching this gospel of grace, I went up to Jerusalem uh, because of a revelation. I think perhaps it was the, the revelation of Agabus, but perhaps it was a dream or a vision, but that doesn't really matter. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul saying, I've been preaching this gospel for 14 years and nobody said a thing. And the reason I went to Jerusalem is not because the, the Jerusalem apostles summoned me or called me out or called me to the principal's office to give an account. I went up because of a whole completely different reason. I've been preaching this gospel of grace for 14 years. And nobody said a thing. Barnabas was with me. And I was declaring this and Barnabas had no issue with it. And the only reason we went to Jerusalem was not to make sure we're in line with the Jerusalem apostles. Or not because they disagreed. I went up because of a revelation. I went up because of another reason. I went because God summoned me, not because these Jerusalem apostles summoned me. This is an important element in Paul's defense of himself. He's not saying that the Jerusalem apostles had any problem with me. Because remember what the opposition is saying. The opposition is saying, you know, Paul doesn't, Paul's just some Johnny come lately to this whole gospel thing, and he preaches something different than what. Uh, Peter, James and John are preaching down in Jerusalem and you know Paul's off on some wild tangent Paul said, but I've been teaching this for 14 years and nobody said a thing and Barnabas is with me and it's not like they ever called me to the carpet or called me into their office and said we need to set you straight Paul in fact the second time I went to Jerusalem it wasn't because they needed to set me straight it was because of a revelation I believe Paul says I went down because That takes famine relief. Now Paul goes on and simply says, "Now while I was in Jerusalem with the famine relief offering, I thought I'd stop in and see what the and talk to Peter, James, and John, and talk to the apostles. I'm here. Might as well have some some interaction with these apostles. Does that all make sense?" you kind of see how all of these pieces, Acts 11 and Galatians chapter 2, all kind of fit together? I hope I did not confuse you too, too much. But that's kind of the big picture story of how this all fits together. And also why Paul is saying what he's saying. Remember, he is defending his position. He's not just telling us a biography of general interest so we know Paul's traveling companions. Paul is making a defense that he is truly an apostle and therefore and also that his gospel message um, is the same message that was being taught by the Jerusalem apostles. Alright, so he goes... And he submits his uh, gospel to the church leader, that is, that that salvation is a gift of God, it is not earned through adherence to um, the law of Moses, but actually it is a gift of God, it is unmerited, and you need to understand that this is a very early, uh, very important church, or very important test for the early church. And the reason being is, if the Jerusalem apostles disagree with Paul, they could easily undo everything that he would already done. And so he says, I've submitted them my gospel, hoping that I had not run or was running in vain. In other words, I hope that all the work that I've done hasn't been for nothing. So after 14 years of preaching this, I went and submitted it to them, and knowing that if they disagreed with me, they could easily easily come and undo every all the work that I've been doing for the past 14 years Paul's concerned about this so if the Jerusalem apostles disagree they could undo and Paul would consider that, that I've done all this work for nothing however and if the position of the Judaizers is upheld Christianity would look completely different today would it not? so in other words our politics would look very different and I know that's important to us but our theological positions would look very different and somebody would come and say well I, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah now what do I need to do and I say well you need to be circumcised and well there that comfort they're not coming back to church or we or we put up some barrier saying you must achieve it and be able to overcome this barrier and once you overcome this barrier then God will receive you and we hear that all the time you know basically you know get get yourself cleaned up and God will be happy with you the bottom line is that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so while you were still hating God that's when he it was unmerited all right, the coming of Christ was something that you never earned or deserved or thought about. He just did it while you and I were still despising him. And so, here we see a very early attack on Christian orthodoxy. It is not the last attack that Christian orthodoxy will face. But it was one of the very early ones. One of the very early attacks on Christian Christian theology um, was that the Judaizers were saying that you need to do something for God to give you favor. And Paul is saying, no, God gives you favor because God gives you favor. It's not the first, it's certainly, probably one of the very earliest theological attacks um, against the church. But right alongside came a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics come along, and they start claiming that, well, you know, inside of you is this spiritual truth, and and your body is really evil and and wicked, but really, inside of you is divinity. And this body really has nothing to do with anything. And so, um, basically there is this inward divinity and this mortal body, this mortal shell just houses this inner godness. We see that today in New Age philosophy and New Age teaching. Basically, you're all inwardly divine and that this body has just, is just housing some inward divinity. And what's happened is we've forgotten that we are truly divine and we need to get back to our inner divinity. That's just basic New Age teaching, but it's just old-fashioned Gnosticism. This is what the Gnostics taught, and Paul deals with the Gnostics in the book of Colossians, and John deals with the Gnostics in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we see a number of uh, New Testament books written to counteract this idea that basically spirit is good and matter is evil, and the body therefore is evil because of it, but inside of you is some good, some good divine nature that you've just lost track of and we need to get back to that and it is through gaining knowledge secret knowledge that you'll learn the true identity of your divine self and for a fee some teacher would come along and teach you um, all that you need to know to realize your inner divinity and then along in the about halfway through the second century a guy by the name of Marcion comes along and he just pleases the Holy Spirit and he comes up with his own version of the Bible and uh, he's very influential but basically he got squashed um, but then in the 4th century uh, the, one of the big players, a guy by the name of Arius comes along and he basically teaches that Jesus is a created being that there was a time when Jesus was not that he is not eternal and that's when Athanasius rises up and um, basically squashes Arius but Arius had, had a lot of influence he was a very, very um, popular teacher Arianism's around today if you have any friends who are Jehovah Witnesses um, basically, if you look at the teachings of Arius and the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll see that they are exactly the same. And uh, uh, that there was a time when Jesus was not his exalted being. He's a wonderful guy, great guy, but he is not eternal. And this was a huge threat on the church, huge threat. The Roman Empire... Uh, wanted just to make peace and said come on everybody can't we all just get along can't you just accept this one little compromise and Athanasius said no we can't accept that one little compromise because it's not a little it's not little it's huge it changes our faith and we will not do it and Athanasius was exiled five times accused of murder all sorts of crazy things alright but all for the sake of maintaining this truth. And then after Arius comes a guy by the name of Pelagius, and Augustine wrestles with Pelagius, and Pelagius basically taught that um, Adam's sin has no effect on you and me, that Adam's, was, Adam's sin was his own sin, and that um, you, there is no imputed Adamic nature, that you know, you just... you're really a good person and that the only reason that you're a sinner is because you sin basically and the biblical position is that we sin because we're born sinners All right? and I guess look at a two year old right <laughs> so Pelagius comes along and teaches this and Augustine thwarts that by the way we see uh, Pelagianism uh, around today um, probably one of the most famous proponents of Pelagianism and unfortunately very popular within the Christian church, Charles Finney in the, the turn of the 20th century um, a great revivalist and we, people study his revival tech, uh, techniques uh, but he's Pelagian All right. full blown, 100% Pelagian I hope I didn't first meet well I hope I did if you're a fan of Finney um Move away from his uh, his techniques and look at his theology, and you will be appalled. Um, After Pelagius, you know, I mean, Luther dealt with this whole idea of indulgences—in other words, you can you can buy your salvation. That you know, well, Christ sacrificed us so much, but now if you pay the church a certain amount of money, you can get some some of your buddies. Out of their eternal, or out of their well, temporary suffering in purgatory, and and Luther was appalled. It's like, are you kidding me? Like Christ sacrificed, and like I got to pay money to be saved? Are you joking me? And he even said, he says, well, if that's the case, then how come the Pope in Rome doesn't sell everything he's got and get those people out? Is he a wicked, evil man? Because if he's got the money and he doesn't do it, I think we've got problems with that. And so there was a return back to this idea of salvation by grace through faith. And of course, so we we go on and on and on. And Christianity has always, always um, been under some sort of Theological attack against the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And so Galatians is hugely important. So what Paul is facing is just simply the first of a long line of battles. And we should realize then that error often follows truth. It was, it was true in Paul's day. It's true in our days. And, and we need to understand that error is usually... Uh, disguised. Paul says these people came in secretly and sneakily and they, they, they came to spy out uh, our freedom but their goal was bondage and this is, error just follows truth we need to understand that rarely does error come in as a uh, somebody doesn't walk in with a big sign saying heretic Okay, this is the bottom line I don't think we'll ever see that People come in and they have, Paul's opponents probably agreed on 99% of the things that Paul agreed with. It was the 1% of things that they disagreed on that made all the difference. So we even see this when we look at the book of Jude. You see, Jude was written for this very thing. It says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. didn't even notice it. Then in verse 12, these are men who are hidden wreaths in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. They're, they're in amongst you. And they look like you and talk like you and act like you. But they don't belong to Christ. Paul even said as he was departing... Uh, talking to the Ephesian elders as he's getting ready to leave them he said after my departure savage wolves will rise up from amongst you not from amongst you not from outside from amongst you and so this is something then that is uh, very um, very common and then Paul goes on and says but we didn't yield to them for a second these people came in secretly. They snuck in. But we didn't yield to them for even a second. And I think that this is an important aspect in our lives because today we are taught we need to just be loving and not confront anything and just love everybody. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. I might love the person, but I will confront them. And we've mistaken a confronting error with hate. And that's just not true. Paul says, we didn't yield for a second. Let me tell you, there are some things worth fighting for. There are some aspects of, of the Christian life that are just worth fighting for. The problem, I think, with the church is that we're willing to fight. We're just not willing to fight for the right things. We fight about, what Sunday school room do I do I get to teach in? What? You're taking away, away my... My favorite song? What, I, what? A guitar? We're fighting over music. We're fighting over where where we house our Sunday school. We're fighting over buildings and budgets and things like that. We're fighting over... You know, I walked out the door and the pastor didn't say hi to me. And I can't believe that. I'm leaving the church. Really? That's what we're... And that is what we're fighting about. I just got back from a conference, teaching at a conference. And one of the pastors is going, Why don't somebody leave the church because... You know, somebody came to me and was telling me about uh, some r- really rather important, detailed tragedy that happened in their life. I'm focused on, on this, that this news that just came to me. And somebody walked by me and I didn't say hi to him, and they call me and tell me you snubbed me at church. And he's like, going, and I'm leaving. And he's going, really, is this what we're going to fight about? And the problem is, this is what the church wants to fight about. So we're willing to fight we're just willing to fight for the wrong things. Yes, and it's all about me. You didn't you didn't say hi to me. He looked at me the wrong way or whatever. Or I don't like the way, you know, the flooring we decided to put in and I'm leaving the church. And I would probably say 19 Five percent of the people who have left this church as a result of a disagreement—not people who have moved or whatever—I would say ninety-five percent of it is not over a theological issue. It is over the fact that I don't know. They don't like our landscaping or something. And then when theological issues come along, we are too worn out from fighting, too beat up from fighting and to compromise from fighting over trivial things that we can't address the important things and let me tell you what I think the real reason is the real reason is that we are not theologically astute enough to understand or recognize when theological error comes in all we can recognize is when my personal preference is, is maligned and that I can fight about but because we are so theologically inept and do not understand theological truths of the Bible that we don't even know when they enter into our churches and this is why in this church we teach theology alright you will probably not hear a whole lot of messages on improving your self-esteem alright because here's why I think I don't need to talk about self-esteem because if I talk about the doctrine of man, anthropology, the theological position of who you are as a human created in God's image and yet fallen and saved by grace, I think that's pretty bolstering to our self-esteem. And if we understand that theology, then... We don't need to be bolstered by some flowery message on self-esteem because we're grounded in a theological position of knowing exactly who we are, created by God, created as the apex of His creation, created for His glory, His image, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the image of God. If we understand some of those things, and yet we're flawed and fallen as a human being, and He reaches down and says flawed and fallen human beings so that they might display His image. If we understand theology... I think all these other things kind of take care of themselves and so because we are so biblically and theologically illiterate we can't recognize error when it enters into our congregation and we accept it lock stop and barrel meanwhile we're fighting over whether or not we should have the baptistry at the front of the church or the back of the church so okay I'm going to get off that soapbox now but some things are worth fighting for and Paul fought for the right things Athanasius fought for the right things Augustine fought for the right things Luther fought for the right things you know Jaime just finished up talking about William Carey he fought for right things like okay let's get rid of child sacrifice yeah that's pretty good I think that's one of those right things you can fight for so, like I said, now I'm done with that soapbox. So, Paul says that I went up to Jerusalem after 14 years and I took Barnabas and I took Titus with me. And this Titus experiment is re- really interesting. Don't think for a moment that Paul mentioning Titus is just some biographical um throwaway line. Titus is very important in what, what Paul is about to do because Paul is saying that there is that Gentiles, non-Jews are saved by grace through faith apart from the law of Moses. So he's taken Titus a Gentile convert. So and I'm going to present my gospel to the Jerusalem church and I'm going to say this is what I've been preaching for 14 years you are saved by grace through faith And that not of yourself, it's not not of works or any of that stuff, and I'm going to bring Titus. Now, these Jerusalem apostles, this uncircumcised Gentile, by the way, is an uncircumcised Gentile, coming into Jerusalem, and Paul is going to present his gospel with Titus. And so, talk is cheap, but will the Jerusalem apostles receive Titus? That's the question. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, Paul, we like what you're saying. That's all really, really good. But you need to do something about Titus. You need to get the knife out. What are you going to do with Titus? Will they receive him? And remember, Paul's making a defense to these detractors who would say that Paul doesn't know what... um, what he's talking about. So Paul says, after 14 years, I went up to the Jerusalem and I presented my gospel there, and I took Titus, and they received my gospel, and they received this uncircumcised Gentile. Bam, truth, game set match. It's over. Any other arguments? What else are you going to say? Paul has just basically I think Paul's closed his case because they didn't reject Titus. They received my gospel, and they didn't reject Titus. They did not compel not even, they didn't even compel Titus to be circumcised. and so if they received Titus and they received my words, then what I'm saying is absolutely true, and you detractors from my gospel have no ground to stand on whatsoever. So again, Paul is going to get to his theological position in chapter three, but right now he's just defending himself. So Paul's gospel and the gospel that was taught by Peter and the Jerusalem apostles is the same and this is relevant because I hear people today say well, basically Paul invented Christianity. No, he didn't. Alright? So that's just not true. Paul's gospel and Peter's gospel were the same gospel. They just went to different places. And I think that's important. So, the source of the gospel, then, Paul is saying, is that my gospel did not come from the Jerusalem leaders. It did not come, in other words, I didn't get it from them. I didn't get it from my vivid imagination. I got it from God. In fact, Paul says, I was entrusted with the gospel. Notice the passive tense there. That um, Paul is the recipient of the gospel. He didn't make it up. He's not the creator or the originator or the inventor of his gospel. It was a gospel that was imparted to him. And so here's what he says. He says, basically... um, I was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and Peter and the Jerusalem apostles were called to preach the gospel to the circumcised or to Jewish believers. We have the same gospel. We just have different fields that we work in, just different areas of work. Paul was called to Gentiles. Peter was called to the Jews. And this doesn't mean Peter never um, shared the gospel with Jews. We know he did to uh, Cornelius. And we know that Paul often shared the gospel to uh, to Jewish people. But primarily Paul went to to the Gentile areas and Peter stayed in Jerusalem with the Jews. So I guess our lesson here is work in the field that God has given you and don't look down upon somebody working in a different field if they're preaching the same gospel. We're going to use different methodologies, but let's not look down on others or compel them to have the same passion as as we do. There is one truth, that there are many fields. For instance, I am much more comfortable teaching to adults than kids but here's what I know, that when we did our our cult camp this June, a couple months ago that they preached the same gospel that I'll preach from up here now here's the thing you will probably never see me use giant rubber bands and marshmallows to get the point across they do Probably not going to happen. But I believe wholeheartedly that they were sharing the exact same gospel. And uh, I'm much more, like I said, I'm much more comfortable with uh, adults than I am with kids. They asked me to share a little bit. Um, um, one night I was petrified. <laughs> <laughs> I can sit in front of 30 master's level students and only be a little petrified. But 18 junior high kids. Oh my goodness! Do you know how hard that was? That was really hard. I'm glad I did it, by the way. Thank you for asking. But I, I'm like, oh man, what do I say to them? You know? And by the way, they have hard questions. Really hard questions. Not like college students. You can almost anticipate what a college student's going to ask you. What a junior high is going to ask you, you have no idea but different fields see the gospel is the basis for our fellowship and so we can have fellowship with one another even though we have completely different backgrounds and completely different understandings of things so when we go to Ecuador the people there we don't share a whole lot in common we don't even speak the same language But the gospel is a basis for fellowship. Paul concludes this biographical defense, if you will, by saying, the only thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was willing to do. So remember the poor. I think it's a sad day. Today is a sad time in Christian history and that we have somehow separated the gospel from acts of mercy that these are like two separate things that either we feed the poor or we preach the gospel see that's really unique to the 20th century and I believe it began really in the 20th century but that, for 2,000 years that was never the case Preaching the gospel and feeding the poor were two sides of the same coin. One went hand in hand with the other. You didn't do one without doing the other. And somehow we've gotten this idea that, well, if you feed the poor, that's the social gospel, and that you really, what they need, if they need the gospel. People need food, too. Acts of mercy um, are really extending the hands of Christ. And so here I think we see this wonderful balance between make sure you feed the poor, don't forget the gospel, but also don't forget the poor. And I think it's a really sad dichotomy in our day. I I understand that feeding the poor isn't a means of salvation, but feeding the poor is the outflow of a saved heart. And so um, as a church, we need to remember... Um, the downtrodden and, the, and those who are, are hurting and suffering, and uh, and I'm thankful that we've been involved in those things. I believe that mercy should follow truth, uh, so let's not make this false dichotomy. Should we should we help the poor? Or should we preach the gospel? I think we should say yes. All right. Um, and so acts of Christian love and compassion on both believers and unbelievers are commanded by Jesus and we would be remiss if we neglected either. So I'll conclude then with this and let dismiss us to our lunch. What Paul has been doing is he's been defending himself and he's by defending himself he defends the gospel of grace. And Paul has told us that every other quote gospel let them be anathema actually let them be cursed literally let them be cursed by God. Um, and it leads to bondage and so it is the gospel of grace and let us beware lest we erect any false barrier that would keep a person from coming to Christ and that a person is saved by grace for good works which we read in Ephesians chapter 2 the reason you were saved by grace is so that you could do good works in the name of Christ so let's stand